Hi, this is David Krulovich, and welcome to Moving Block, a podcast about cities, transportation, and anything else on my mind. You can subscribe to my show on iTunes by typing Moving Block into the search field. This pod is also available on SoundCloud and other platforms. Comments and show topic suggestions are welcome via email at movingblockpodcast@gmail.com. Did you know that Uber and Lyft drivers spend one-third of their time in Midtown Manhattan empty, searching and waiting for fares? How does this affect congestion and what can be done to have our taxi system run more efficiently? I sit down with Bruce Schaller, a consultant and a former executive at NYC DOT and Taxi and Limousine Commission on how best to manage our roads and alleviate traffic. We also discuss the hot topic of congestion pricing which Governor Cuomo has recently voiced his support for. Without further ado, Bruce Schaller. So you were a long time worker at DOT, correct? Right. So I was at uh, New York City DOT for about eight years um, and then had worked as a consultant and worked at New York City Transit, worked at uh, several other city agencies and uh, also um, worked on my own as a consultant. So how do you usually get around the city now? Uh, do you have a car or use a bike? No, I don't have a car. We had a car while the kids were growing up, and once uh, they were about ready to leave home, we no longer needed the car. I mainly use the subway, walk, use the bus, and then I'm also an avid cyclist, although a lot of those miles are out of town on, on trips. So you've uh, recently re- released a report called Empty Seats, Full Streets about the transportation network companies like Uber and uh, Lyft. Uh, do you use any of these ride-hailing apps often? or I use them mainly um, when I'm traveling. I use them coming home from the airport often. I also use car services and and yellow cabs, and then I'll use them when I'm traveling. I don't so much use them around town. You describe uh, in your report that the number of taxis and transportation network company cars like Uber and Lyft have risen 59% in the Manhattan Central Business District in the last six years or so. Can you describe the impacts this has meant for traffic in Manhattan? So I think what's happened over the last four or five years is that the level of activity in a lot of different ways has gone up. So there's more Uber and Lyft, which didn't even exist four or five years ago. There's actually fewer cabs, but overall that sector has grown quite considerably, as you note. There's also more trucks. um, There's more construction. There's more people crossing the street. There's more of everything going on in terms of activity. And of course, Manhattan was already a crowded place and traffic was slow. Um, but you add jobs, you add people, you add vehicles, and what you get is much slower traffic speeds, more congestion, and also unreliability. Uh, how long it takes to get from here to there is going to vary a lot day to day. You also mentioned your report that taxis and TNCs are empty for up to one-third of the amount of time they are in in Manhattan, is that correct? Yes. And so what accounts for that? So what accounts for that is is there's a leveling effect that goes on in the city. And it's a little bit arcane, but it's really quite fascinating to see. I think of it um, as Adam Smith's invisible hand in action here in, in 2017 and 2018 in sort of a textbook economic way. So think about how the city works. There's cab service, car services, Uber and Lyft all over the city, right? So if you're one of the great things about TNCs has been that they've brought reliable ride services to Staten Island, to Eastern Queens and 
other northern Bronx to all over the city where people had car services of varying levels of reliability before. So that's really an important uh, part of the story and a really big piece of good news. And you look around the country, you see the same thing in small towns and rural areas. People can get around without a car for the first time in their lives. But think about it from the driver's standpoint. If you're driving in eastern Queens or Staten Island or these other outlying parts of the city, you're going to make a certain number of trips and a certain amount of, of income per day, right? And because the trips are a little bit more spread out, you're going to drive a little further than you might in Manhattan to make the pickup. And so you would expect more time between trips from dropping off one customer to picking up the next in those areas of the city than you would in Manhattan. You would think in Manhattan the vehicles would be very intensively used because there's such a density of trips. And you can go bang, 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 bang from one trip to the next, to the next, to the next, right? And drivers do. You see drivers who have just a couple minutes between trips, and that makes perfect sense. But what you also have is you have drivers who make a drop-off on the Upper East Side, Long Island City, other parts of Queens and Brooklyn, and then drive empty back into Manhattan. Well, why do they do that? Because they think they can make as much or maybe more money in Manhattan than they can in the boroughs. Imagine the other universe where drivers in Manhattan may just work bang, bang, bang and made a lot more money than drivers in Brooklyn and Queens, right? Which is what you might expect. Well, in that case, drivers are smart. More of them will go back to Manhattan. Well, that's exactly what's happening. So you have this kind of leveling off of what drivers make. And because these businesses in their business model, they're the supply of service, the drivers decide how much to drive, when to drive, and where to drive. In this driver supply world, it's a little arcane, but it's really quite interesting. And it's, it is what is determining the 40, the 30, 40% empty vehicles in Manhattan. What's driving it is so drivers make the same amount in Manhattan as in the borough. So people think, or drivers think, they can make more money in Manhattan, so they're pouring into the central business district? Well, one of the fascinating things about this is that drivers make about the same amount of money no matter where they work in the city. And that's the invisible hand part of this. You'd sort of expect it in a way, right, because drivers will change where they go depending on what they think they can make, where they can make it, and, and when. But it's each driver making an individual decision, and you get the net effect of this leveling out. And so that's what's, that's sort of the invisible hand part. That's what's so interesting, is the drivers making decisions on their own then produce kind of consistent wages um, across the five boroughs. What I do want to know, what individuals dri individual drivers make will vary a lot from one to the next. So we're talking about averages. We're not talking about... You talk to a cab driver, he says, oh, I tried TNCs and I didn't make as much money. Well, that's one person's experience, but then you'll talk to an Uber driver. He says, well, I used to drive yellow cabs and I didn't make as much money. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just in a lift uh, the other day and I said, do you go to Long Island? And he said, yeah, you know, I take, I take calls to Long Island, but the rates aren't as good in Long Island, so I end up back in the city. So, you know, I guess he's driving in opposite direction, empty for a long period of time to get back into, I guess, the five boroughs if it's more expensive. Right, right. Whereas you'll have some, you'll, you'll probably have a driver in Nassau County who says, I drop off people in the city and I want to get out of there, it's too congested. <laughs> yeah, to each his own, I guess, right? Yeah. Now that uh, there's so many of these black cars or TNCs, as you call them, um, in Manhattan, what can be done to control their growth or... or change their behavior from 
all entering into the city? Well, I think a bunch of things. I think the, the low-hanging fruit and what I focused on in my report in December was to say, hey, there's all this waste, there's all this inefficiencies of, dri- of vehicles and drivers not having a passenger way more time than is needed. And there are techniques for dispatch that Uber and Lyft use at airports across the country that I believe could be applied in Manhattan and reduce that vacant time and make them use their time and street space more efficiently. So I think that's a win for everybody. It's a win for traffic and people using the streets because it's fewer of those vehicles. It's a win for drivers because they'd be making more money. So I think that's a good place to start because I think it should win broad support. Another thing that I think we're likely to see Governor Cuomo looking at um, once his fixed New York uh, report, is his group's report comes out later this week, is a surcharge on fares. Um, I've heard something in the neighborhood of $2. We'll see what they propose. That would have a little bit, that would could raise some good revenue for the MTA. It would only have a little bit of effect on traffic because people who use Uber and Lyft are not very price sensitive. So a higher fare is not going to induce them to use these services much less. A little bit, but not much. The other thing that the city could do, well, what the city really needs to do and what this money should go toward is improving MTA service so that people have a good option there. Um, what the city could do, and I've been been talking to several cities about how this might be done, is to use street management um, to give more priority to vehicles that have more passengers in them. Bus lanes are the obvious example of this, but you could imagine something similar for other vehicles that have multiple passengers, two or three or four passengers in them, give them priority and give everyone an incentive to um, fill those empty seats. You described the airport dispatching, the way it runs in Kennedy and LaGuardia. Can you can you explain that in more detail and how that could be applied to Midtown Manhattan, for example? Sure. So the way that uh, the TNCs are, are running operations at a number of airports is the, the normal way is that you have a, a holding lot for drivers to wait in that's several miles away from the airport. Yeah, I've been to that. It's like, like a terminal. before the first terminal. It's like kind of you just right. wait to get a phone call, then you come. Right. So that when you come out of the terminal as a passenger, you request a ride, and then you wait seven, eight minutes, typically maybe longer depending on the traffic, for the driver to go from the hold to your terminal. Meanwhile, there's somebody else who's getting dropped off at that same terminal and who would normally then go back to the holding area. So you have all this back and forth. The airports don't like this because it congests the airport roadways. One of the things about airports is that they treat their roads as like private property and, and have a great deal of control. And so what the TNCs have worked out with the airports is that when you have someone dropping off and someone else wants a ride, you give that new trip to the past to the driver who's just dropping off so the driver instead of going back to the hold goes and picks you up and you don't have all that back and forth so it's the back and forth that's congesting the roadways unnecessarily you could do the same kind of thing in midtown the manhattan cbd as a whole by prioritizing drivers who just dropped off that would discourage drivers from driving empty back into Manhattan. 
they would get that cue just as they do now so that things kind of level off. And so it would then give them the incentive to go work out other parts of the city rather than deadhead back into Manhattan. That's really where most of the excessive uh, driving is. Uh, just to be more clear, just to understand kind of how the whole Uber Lyft system works, when you, uh, let's say, take a cab uh, out to Elmhurst in Queens and you get dropped off, the person that's um, driving that cab turns the app off before they get back into Manhattan? Or how do, how do they, so they just say, I don't want to be hailed in this area now? Or how does that all work? Right. So it depends on the driver, and it probably depends on time of day and exactly where you are and some other factors. They can do several things. One is they can turn the app off and drive back to Manhattan in that. They could, they could turn the app off and go to Kennedy Airport or the like. A second thing is they might leave the app on and drive back toward Manhattan and see what happens. And if they don't get a ride before they get to Manhattan, just go on into Manhattan. So those are, yeah, those are pretty much the two things. But so, so what you're saying is it would, it would be, there would be basically a ride waiting for them near that area when they, when they let the other passenger out or uh, with the dispatch system or how does that? Yeah. So I can't see from the data whether they turn the app off or not. Uber and Lyft can see that. And I've been talking to Uber and Lyft staff about exactly how this would work. And they've been reacting to what I've been saying about like the airports and applying that to Manhattan. And they're kind of working to think that through and look at how their system might operate under that. And one of the things that would be good to look at here is what do drivers do? How much of this is the debt heading back in, as I think it is from the data that I have? Are drivers turning off the app? Are they just cruising back in with the app on? Are they turning down trips? What exactly are they doing? Because you want to know what, before you make a change in a situation, you obviously want to know what the current situation is. How receptive have officials in the state and local government been to um, your findings and policy suggestions about transportation network companies? Uh, They've been very interested in the findings. I've gone and briefed both state and city officials Um, in both of the reports that I did in 2017. It's been a really good conversation. Um, They give me feedback and comments and make sometimes ask questions that I need to really think about more. So it's a good part of this whole research process and policy development process. I am in the fortunate position of being able to look at these things independently um, and I hope objectively and try and figure out what's going on and what policy, what public policy should be. So we've had some very good conversations. This last report I got a lot of interest in and I'm continuing to talk with people about. It's a new idea. People have to really kick the tires and there needs to be a good deal of conversation about it. I know how these processes work. I've been through them many times, but I think we're, we're on the right road. So uh, where, where do you stand on congestion pricing um, in New York City? Uh, in what form? So I worked on congestion pricing 10 years ago. It's hard to believe it was that long ago. Both before I went to work at New York City DOT, which was in June 2007, and then when I was there, I was the point person at DOT for all of the congestion pricing. And that included both the development of what this plan looks like, 
Um, and we worked through in great detail exactly how to implement it. Um, so we worked through where the gantries would go and what kind of um, camera technology and, and, you know, do you use fiber optics or do you use the city's wireless network? All of those details that obviously are behind the scenes but critical to the success. We talked to London and Stockholm, which had implemented congestion pricing a few years earlier and learned quite a bit from them, their experience. So I think the city should do congestion pricing. I think it should do a cordon type of plan. So um, where drivers are charged crossing the East River and 60th Street. I think there's three important components to an overall plan. One is the cordon congestion pricing. a second one is a surcharge on taxi and for higher fares for trips beginning in Manhattan. And then the third is dealing with the vacant time between trips. The taxis in um, New York currently have a 50 cent surcharge for yellow taxis, but they don't have it for Uber and Lyft. Is that right? That's right. But Uber and Lyft passengers pay as part of the fare an eight and something percent sales tax, about half of which goes to the city, half to the state, and a little bit to the MTA. So yellow taxis don't pay a sales tax, but uh, black car or uh, Uber and Lyft do? Do, you do. And if you look at your bill, you'll see it. And in fact, the sales tax adds up to more for everything except very short trips than the 50 cent what do you think about the move New York congestion pricing plan? So I think that's completely on the right track and really the basis of that plan and, and they made some tweaks to it certainly was the the congestion pricing plan in 2008. In a report you produced last year, um, you stated that over one half of TNC mileage in the CBD involves trips that both begin and end between 60th Street and the Battery which would not be subject to a cordon-based charge. What way could you deal with limiting these types of excessive trips within the Manhattan CBD? Right. So I, I think the simple way to do that is to have a surcharge on the fare. In that report, I talked about a $3 per trip surcharge. And I think it makes sense to have the surcharge as a per trip surcharge because there are many trips that go longer distances outside the CBD. And what you want to discourage actually are the shorter trips within the CBD, or you want to discourage that mileage within the CBD, which for most trips is just a few miles. The CBD north to south is, you know, only like six miles. And so having it be a flat amount per trip, I think properly discourages the kinds of trips that could easily shift to transit. What do you think could be done to... Uh, help convince the mayor on congestion pricing? Every constituent should send him an email or write him a letter and say, this is ridiculous. This is clearly what the city needs. I I assume you've been to other cities across the world that have done this successfully? Yeah, I've been to specifically London and Stockholm, which have done the cordon pricing, and Germany, which has done truck uh, pricing on on their highway system. Quite interesting. You've suggested in some of your reports that Road pricing could be a solution to New York streets being cluttered by uh, TNCs. What is road pricing and how could that be implemented in New York? The idea of road pricing on city streets is if you're not doing some type of cordon congestion pricing, what could you do short of that or maybe as a precursor to that 
And so I've been developing ideas about how you might use that kind of express lane that you see on highways in a surface street environment on avenues in Manhattan, let's say, where you charge certain lanes and not other lanes. This can get pretty sticky because of just the chaotic nature of the street. But I think there are some approaches to this that are worth at least taking a look at. And the idea is to get value. So why do people object to any kind of pricing? They object to it because they don't feel they get anything for it. You go to the drugstore and you get toothpaste. Why do you buy toothpaste? Because you get something for it, right? It may not be the thing that gives you the most joy in life, but you do get value for your money. In the same way, driving around Manhattan might not be the thing that gives you the most joy in life, (laughs) but you get (laughs) the value of going from A to B. And if you could go a little faster, that would give you value too. Particularly for certain users like trucks where time is money. And so the idea is to look at opportunities to price and manage certain parts of the street network and give privileges, either just faster travel um, or other things. For example, for freight, you might allow use of the um, sort of managed lanes for a price. And you might also say, hey, you know, we're going to have places at the curb for you to park to make deliveries. But Part of the rules of the game here is don't double park. Don't block the box at intersections. Don't do these other behaviors where, which slow down traffic for no really good reason. So you'll see spaces at the curb and a truck double park, well, because he wanted to be right where the door to the building he's going to is. He won't walk a couple of, you know, half a block to get there. So these are the things that people do for their own convenience that everyone pays for, including the people doing them pay the next time someone else does them. So one of the things I learned at DOT is if you just organize the street, you can improve how it operates quite a bit. If you say if you're making a right turn, go here. If you're making a left turn, go here. If you're making a through movement, go here. Helps a lot. And so there's a lot of ways you can organize the street better. Everyone can be better off, but you need some incentives or inducements to do that. So this sort of managed lane concept brought to the streets is aiming to do that. Bus ridership has been declining in New York for a number of years. How much would you attribute that to app-based services as opposed to just general congestion? Well, I think it's a lot of different things. Um, I think app-based services are more kind of providing the outlet, the option for people who aren't satisfied with the bus. And it's not most of that decline, I don't think. We don't know for sure, but I don't. when you just run the numbers, uh, I don't think it even can be. I think a lot of it is slow speeds. I think a lot of it is um, the increases in disposable income that people have and they're making other choices. And then there's a portion of it that, frankly, I don't think we understand that well. Um, we see it in New York. We see it in other cities. A number of these trends you see across major cities in the U.S. So... There's some broader factors at play than New York-specific factors like um, TNCs or like traffic, which I think are a part of the picture, but not entirely. Considering Uber lost $1.5 billion last quarter, could some of these issues with app-based services disappear once they either have to raise their prices or go out of business? Well, it's true at some point the 
venture capitalists are going to say they want to see um, Uber and Lyft start to make money and uh, uh, provide a return on investment. Um, and nobody knows exactly what that subsidy is. A lot of the subsidy takes special forms. It's not the fare itself. It's incentives to drivers to show up on the Upper East Side at 5 a.m. so that there's drivers when, when Upper East Side residents want to go the short hop to LaGuardia that can take just a few minutes and isn't that big of a fare. Um, there's incentives every time the companies go into a new market to get drivers out on the street before the customers show up. It's getting these services out is a chicken and egg problem that you need the drivers to have the customers um, before there are customers. So a lot of the subsidies that are out there are actually targeted in this fashion. They're not in the fare that you pay in New York. So they're trying to essentially steal away drivers that might otherwise be riding, uh, driving a regular black car or a or a uh, yellow taxi? Right. There's, everyone's stealing from everyone else. So Uber and Lyft are stealing drivers from each other, if stealing is the word, from yellow cabs, from black cars, from car services, from other jobs as well in what is an expanding economy. I remember when, when I was a kid, I grew up on the Upper West Side, and they had things called gypsy cabs. I don't know if there's anyone under the age of 30 that would even know what that means if you said that to them. Well, we call them car services now because they've become, <laughs> I remember that day too. I was actually at the taxi commission when the big push was made to get them legit and licensed and have the proper insurance. And happily, we don't really have gypsy cabs. We have car services that are properly insured and responsible. Recently, there's been a big outcry in Leonia, New Jersey. Waze and Google Maps have been consistently telling drivers from outside the neighborhood and outer areas of New Jersey to drive through residential neighborhoods to get to the George Washington Bridge. And there's been a lot of controversy around this. How do apps used by TNCs like Google Maps and Waze factor into congestion? The mapping apps cause problems in Leonia because it is actually the fastest way to get to the George Washington Bridge through these residential neighborhoods. And you probably see a little bit of that, for example, to get to the Brooklyn Bridge in Brooklyn. But for the most part, if you look at, for example, the Manhattan Street Grid, there are no minor north-south avenues. There's no side streets to go on. Um, and the east-west side streets are quite slow. So the apps aren't telling you to use these obscure kind of residential streets to get to where you want to go, as they are in New Jersey in these cases. And I think what the apps do is that they help to even out the traffic. So, you know, to go up 6th Avenue instead of a different avenue and turn on this cross street versus this, and it sort of has, you don't have to be an expert in where the traffic is going to be, or if there's a blockage, kind of opens the street, that kind of thing, it'll help you maneuver around that. So I actually think that the apps on the whole are very beneficial, both from an individual standpoint and from the way the system operates as a whole. They, yeah. move, the congestion, they move the congestion points around and sort of even them off. They're obviously not reducing congestion overall. I'd love just to see somehow a scientific way of looking at those how the routes they tell people to go on, how much faster or slower they actually are. Because my experience has been sometimes they're better, but then sometimes they'll suggest a route that really is out of the way. And maybe it is slower, maybe it's faster, but at least from what my experience driving has been, I, I was going to Kennedy Airport 
from my apartment in downtown Brooklyn, and they suggested to go down to Linden Boulevard and back all the way through that way, which I know is very slow. So, Yeah, so I've had that experience, too, and I think a part of it is, is two things. One is there's always a lag in the apps because the apps are using existing how long is taking cars to get from A to B once they get to B and you're just getting to A or you may not get to A for another five or 10 minutes. I've seen this on the FDR drive that the app is showing where congestion starts and I actually see it earlier or later because there's a lag between when I'm there and the data they're using. It's inherent to how they're calculating speeds. The other thing is that your perception of speed can be really different than your actual speed. So the best example of this to me is when I'm on the BQE, I've learned never get off the BQE unless you're not moving because the surface streets will just be slower, even if you feel like you're going really slowly. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. You have just listened to the Moving Block podcast with your host, David Krulowicz. To learn more about Bruce Schaller and his work, visit his website at schallerconsult.com. Check me out on Twitter for the latest updates. Thanks for listening.